Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my colleague and Power Hour producer, John Pop. John, how are you today? Jack, I am so good. I am talking to you from my man cave studio here in my home with my professional broadcast microphone, my mini fridge, and uh, a microwave oven, so I'm set. I'll be here for days, maybe years. <laughs> That's awesome. It sounds like you're right here, so though I wish you were here, you sounding like you're here is a good next best thing. Yeah, and thank goodness for technology. You know, it's like I'm right here, right, by, right beside you, baby. Ready to go. Has your week been good? Excellent. I'm yeah, uh, good, good, good. Jack, I will be happy to report to you, you and the audience, I have 10... Uh, radiation treatments left and one chemo left and I'm finished with all this stuff. So I'm very excited to have gotten this far. Uh, Excellent. It's been quite a journey, but, but um, you know. An adventure. It, it's been an adventure, quite an adventure, <laughs> but we're getting to the end. I'm very excited. So there we very go. Good. There we go. Well, yep. everyone, uh, I know I'm glad to hear that. I'm sure everyone else is as well. Now, yep. for, first I want to point out to our listeners that if you liked last week's podcast, on our dependence on Russian uranium. We published a piece on that, and we'll put the link to, uh, a link to that piece in the description. So if you want to learn more about that issue, we got more for you. Also, I'm sad that our new friend Lauren won't be joining us today, but it's not because she hates us. She just had a scheduling conflict, and she'll be periodically joining us in the future. But I thought she did a great job, and I look forward to having her back. Now, are you sure she doesn't hate us? She said she didn't hate us, so okay. I'm not sure. But sometimes, I, with, sometimes with me, I wonder. I don't know what, what the philosophical school is, but I am of the school that none of us know anything. So <laughs> I, don't, I shouldn't claim to know that. But that's what she said, so Jack, we'll go with that. As I get older, yes. I realize the less I know as I get older. So <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in there with you. <laughs> I'm utterly convinced that no one knows anything. Um, <laughs> but we need to pretend we do, and that's exactly what I'm going to do right now. Now, I want to update you, John, on my journey into making things out of pallets. I mentioned last week that I built a spice oh, rack, nice. and that ra- rack is now yeah. hanging on my wall, holding spices. <laughs> this week, I took it Love a step it. further, and I built a, a cabinet to hold things like oils Whoa. and vinegar, and it, too, is currently hanging on my wall. So, wow. What should I build next, John? I have a whole other pallet. What do you think I should build? Do you have any any suggestions? Because I'll build it. I can build anything. About, I'll, I should add. Perhaps an end table, maybe. An en- or... Okay. <laughs> I, I, I will do that. It'd be, it'd be kind of rustic, you know. It'd be kind of cool. I will. I will and build practical. an end table, and I'll bring you a picture of it. My goal for this week, oh, um, in non-working hours, uh, will be to build an end table, and I'll, I'll bring you a picture of it. It's going to be awesome. Excellent. So now I guess is a good time to do um, our housekeeping. Our email address is, as you know, but I will remind everyone, thepowerhour at heritage.org. So please send me an email. I love hearing from everyone. 
I respond to everyone, yep. I promise. So let me know what you're thinking. Tell us what you want to hear this week, or not this week, because I'm already decided what we're going to hear this week. But next week or weeks to come, <laughs> um, what sort of issues you want us to, to, to come up with. Or if you want us to do something totally different, let me know. And as I promised last week, I'm going to start giving you a heads up of what's coming up so that you can send things that you might want me to talk about our, uh, our next guest about. So next week, our guest is going to be a tech policy expert, and we're going to be talking about the massive amounts of energy that we're going to need to power our future technology and what that looks like and how in the world are we going to be able to power this technology if we're not able to make power. So anyway, <laughs> that will be our topic. And if you want to know about that or you have a specific question, send us an email at thepowerhour at heritage.org. Now, John, where can they find us? We are part of the Herd at Heritage podcast feed. So just go to your favorite search engine, look up the Power Hour, Herd at Heritage, or Herd at Heritage, the Power Hour. Either one will work. And we're on all the podcast feeds. Apple, Spotify, Ricochet, whatever. We're there. So just Google the Power Hour and you'll find us. And subscribe so you don't even have to do that. Yeah, please subscribe Always and subscribe. share with your friends. And even if they're not your friends, yes. share, please. Yes. Please, please, please. Now, John, I had something funny happen to me last night. My daughter was at home doing her homework and she was assigned a... Uh, an article to read on child labor. And, of course, this Whoa. article is about the horrors of child labor in the United States. And and I pointed out to her that, you know, I have a different perspective on it. And, and not just child labor in the United States, but how I think that it's sort of uh, hypocritical for those of us in the West and rich countries to be dictating to poorer countries how they should basically – if you need to put food on the table and you need to survive, and if, if, right. if, 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 if sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Now, I'm not for kids in sweatshops and things like that. Don't get me wrong. But my point to her was that there's nuance in this stuff. And, um, and in the United States, there's a difference between um, a, a teenager having access to the workplace to build skills and – um, forcing kids into a uh, into a sweatshop where they lose fingers, and that sometimes this nuance is lost, and that as she reads this and discusses it in class, that's a that's a point worth uh, investigating. So we had that conversation, but that that's not the funny. Well, it it's funny because that's not the funny part. Here's the funny part. She started at the end of the article. There were um, a number of people who held views similar to mine that were quoted as a way to. To, to provide some of this nuance. And one of those people was Steve Moore. And it was fun to, for me to tell my daughter, oh, by the way, that guy used to work for me. And he's a good friend of mine. And so I said, take that to your teacher and tell her to smoke it. So we'll see. Um, I don't think that she probably did that. But um, it's always fun to – that was fun for me to um, point out to my daughter how, um, you know, if nothing else, I know the guy that was in her article. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> now, um, there's something else I want to point out that, 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 that came up yesterday. I got triggered, John. I uh -oh. got triggered bad. Uh, oh, no. Yeah, and this is going to lead us into our discussion today. I'm not just <laughs> rambling on. I was watching Russell Brand's um, oh, uh, podcast on, on YouTube, 
And right. Russell Brand always triggers me. It's not that Russell triggers me. I'm generally mm-hmm. sympathetic to at least where Russell is today. Um, but often the <laughs> things that he talks about on his podcast are triggering. Well, yesterday right, right. was just super triggering. It was in the wake of the Iowa caucus. And I, I'm not, it's not my job to get political. So th- th- this is not about me being political. But one of the things he pointed out um, was how MSNBC wouldn't show Trump's Except his speech after the the um, yeah. you know after his victory, and um, and that you know that is what it is. But then right. he had these people, Rachel Maddow and her 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 buddies, explain why this is and the paternalistic elitist attitude they had. That they were protecting us from the from from what Trump might say, and that we needed their filter to help right. us better um, able to understand the misinformation and disinformation mm-hmm. that Trump was going to say, and she wasn't going to subject us to that, and that was triggering enough. But this is what got me going. What got me going was then they went into this, mm-hmm. like, holier-than-thou ty- uh, holier uh, discussion about how the United States was facing the threat of despotism and fascism and authoritarianism, that they that, that the implication <laughs> clearly was that Trump won this, and we are getting precariously close to authoritarianism, and everyone should be horrified about this, and... and and it got me to thinking, you are telling me, Rachel Maddow, that what, what, what Trump is talking about is a, is a threat to authoritarian, authoritarianism. But the guy that you support, Joe Biden, he's going to protect us about authoritarianism. So I got to think that is insane to me because it seems to me everything that man does gets us one step closer to authoritarianism. But then I thought maybe it's the case that I don't quite understand what authoritarianism is. So you know what I did? I looked it up, being the researcher that I am. So I looked. Now I know that the internet is the internet. So I looked at you know dictionary.com. It's not Webster's. It's not Cambridge, but it's just what came up. And here is the definition of authoritarianism according to dictionary.com. And I quote: "Of or relating to a government or political system, principle or practice in which individual freedom is held as completely subordinate to the power of authority of the state." centered either in one person or a small group that is not constitutionally accountable to the people. Now, I hate to say it, John, but I feel like we are edging awfully close to this right now. Think about the bureaucrats in the EPA. They're not elected, and they are telling us what to do every day. They're telling us what we can buy, how we can live our life, the kind of stoves we can purchase. Right. Are you kidding me? They're using global warming policy to completely dictate how we produce energy. And energy, let's remember, is the lifeblood of not just democracy, but prosperity. That Mm -hmm. if you control energy, you control everything. And that's precisely what these guys are doing. So the question needs to be asked, are we there already? Now, (laughs) I'm not saying we're there already. I have a – I do have on occasion a 10 – foil hat that I will wear. I acknowledge that. But I don't wear it all the and time. And I, so I'm not saying we are in an authoritarian state. We have a constitution, checks and balances, and all that stuff. But there's no question that the trajectory we're on, the empower, empowering the bureaucracy to dictate everything we do and to consolidate power with a small group of elitists in Washington, D.C., is not some form of authoritarianism. It might not be Nazis jackbooting themselves down Main Street, but it's something. And it's something that, luckily, people are fighting against. And there are people working hard to restore power to us. And one of the most powerful tools for doing that is to take the big, fat, faceless, soulless, and heartless bureaucrats to court. And that's exactly what folks are doing. 
And one of the most impactful areas where this is happening is in energy and environment. And that, of course, is because that's what the left is using to, enha- to enact their agenda. Now, I know a little bit about energy and environment issues, or at least I pretend to, on this podcast. I do my best. But I am not a lawyer. And as you know, John, I don't like lawyers. Really? <laughs> is this something, something new? At least most lo- <laughs> I, don't, I, I hate to be so broad, you know, uh, broad in my approach. So let me just say I, I don't like most lawyers. Like bureaucrats and politicians. Okay. Though, there are always exceptions to the rule. And by golly, wouldn't you know it, we happen to have one of those exceptions to the rule with us here today. Our guest today is not just a brilliant lawyer, but he uses his power for good. He served as a law clerk for the Honorable Madeline Haikala. I probably said that wrong. He'll correct me if I'm wrong. On the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Alabama and for the Honorable Patrick Higglebotham. Higginbottom. I probably said that wrong. John, as you know, I have a hard time with like three syllable names, um, but we'll get all that corrected. On the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. And most importantly, now he is a legal fellow in the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies here at the Heritage Foundation. After all that, I need to take a drink. All right. It is my pleasure to welcome to the Power Hour my colleague, Mr. Jack Fitzhenry. Jack, welcome to the Power Hour. Jack, thank you for having me. How is that for an introduction? Did I do okay? Uh, there were a couple of, of bobbles on the pronunciations, but uh, you know, I, I don't blame you. Those, those were uh, some, uh, some long, multi-syllable last names. So, That's uh, right. But I, I was lucky I was, to work for both. I was actually <laughs> going to ask you how to pronounce them first, but it's been become sort of a running joke on the podcast that I have a hard time pronouncing yeah. these three and, three and four syllable names. So, Jack, would you tell us, and I went on that rant, now I can't uh, get the scratch out of my throat. Could you tell us how to appropriately pronounce these people's names? Sure. Uh, so my, my district court judge was uh, Judge Heikela. Uh, my circuit court judge was Judge Higginbotham. So. so I had that right the first time, or I was closer to right. Um, most embarrassingly for me is that when we have a guest who has a name like that, that I can't get out, <laughs> which has happened a couple of times. Um, anyway, I can pronounce Jack. Like, I know how to pronounce it. I've been doing it. For 50 years. I, I think you should have a handle on it. That's... <laughs> all right. Well, well, in all seriousness, thank you for being here. This is an important subject. I make some light of some things sometimes. Um, but this really is an important issue because I think the broad trajectory of what I was saying is true. That we, you know, I'm not saying that we are on the actual precipice of dictatorship. But there are certain elements of policy that is mo- that, that is moving us more in the direction of that than another direction. And luckily, we have a system that our founders created a system that puts checks and balances on that, and hopefully those will be taken full advantage of. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. But before we get into that, I just wanted to take a few minutes and get to know, get to know you a little bit, both for the Power Hour audience, but um, even though we're colleagues, we work for the same place. We haven't, we haven't actually met before. So a lot of the times, um, I have people on the podcast that I have long relationships with. This time, um, I'm hope, hopefully it's the beginning of a, a new um collegial relationship. So how long have you been at Heritage? Uh, I'll be coming up on two years this May, so not terribly long. Okay. Um, And what do you do here? Like, what what does a legal fellow do at Heritage? (laughs) Good question, for which I don't have a great answer. Um, No, in some ways, it's it's not so dissimilar from uh, the work one does as a law clerk. Uh, It is mostly research and writing. Um, You know, we we are uh, 
a broad uh, generalist group in the Mies Center of, you know, all lawyers or, or, or people with legal training. Um, but we cover a, a broad host of subjects because, of course, the law you know, is, is comprehensive in its reach. It touches on almost every human concern, um, but not every human concern is of equal interest to us. Most of what I happen to do personally is in the area of administrative law. So the body of law that governs uh, agencies um, and, and how they discharge their duty to be faithful agents to the legislature, whether that's at the state level, um, mostly the federal level. Uh, so administrative law is, is a focus of mine, constitutional law and the separation of powers. These three things sort of intermesh with one another frequently uh, in ways that we'll probably explore a little bit today. Um, I do a little bit of work uh, in the realm of election law and election integrity. Um, but I, I, to be honest, I remain a pretty recalcitrant recalcitrant generalist. Um, I, I've never been much interested in specialization. No single subject has ever jumped out and, and grabbed my attention on a sort of permanent basis. So uh, I'm kind of happy to work on whatever the center deems important. Now, um, I jokingly said I don't like lawyers. That's that's really not true. It's, it, ju- it, it's it, justified. It's, it, it's often the case. People, <laughs> it's often the case. Many of my interactions with lawyers are ones that I don't like because I live in Washington. <laughs> but that is not a comment on my respect for the legal profession because across the board, I think, honestly, it's one of the most important professions we have. I just wish we had fewer of them and those that we did have were doing good, you know, protecting people's rights, um, making sure innocent people are, are – that, that justice is properly served, those kinds of things. And so I'm, I'm curious um, to for you, what got you interested in law, sort of what – got you here to what was it about law that brings you to this point today i don't know that there's a super you know unique answer to that i, w- I was an english lit major in, in undergrad you know where i had a, a pretty positive experience but uh, when i looked out on on the prospects of what i might do with that i just you know it was the academic track and i didn't want to be specialized as i as mm-hmm. i kind of alluded to earlier and it, it struck me that becoming highly specialized was sort of an necessity were I to continue on the high academic track of English literature. Um, I, I had one family member who was a lawyer, um, but certainly not a family kind of steeped in the legal profession. Uh, it, it struck me as sort of a way to bring some of the training I'd had in English lit to bear on sort of more immediate and practical concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you're doing, when you're exploring topics like uh, literary theory uh, textual interpretation, obviously those those map on pretty closely to the concerns about statutory interpretation that lawyers deal with. Um, when you're concerned about communicating um, arguments not only effectively but artfully, um, it's indispensable to being a good lawyer. And, and you can take a lot of pride in your writing, which is, I think, something that you know motivates people who at one time were, were English majors. Um, and, and that's why it's, it's sort of true, um, as people smarter than me have said, that uh, law is like the professional degree for liberal arts majors. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's no secret as to why um, lots of people with, with humanities types backgrounds end up in the law um, and, you know, fewer, say, hard STEM majors go there. Um, of course, the, the legal profession has space for all of us, I think. But it, it, law has just struck me as, as a good way to bring the limited skill set that I had to bear on on problems of interest, po- problems of consequence. And and so, admittedly, I followed the well-trod path. You know, I went to law school without having very definite ideas as to how I was going to make use of the degree. But, um, you know, I had a marvelous experience in law school intellectually. It was as as fulfilling as I might have hoped. Um, I, was, I was 
very fortunate to be a student at the University of Michigan, uh, to which I am still desperately loyal. Um, and, and then I had some marvelous opportunities, which you alluded to, um, particularly with those two judges, marvelously principled and intelligent people who helped me become a more careful and thoughtful lawyer. Um, I spent a little bit of time in, in private practice, um, you know, kind of a necessity, economically speaking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One has student debts to deal with. Um, the, the faster those are dispatched, the better. But I, I never uh, found myself super enamored of the, the private practice of law. And so there came a time where I was starting to consider, how can I continue to make best use of this degree, um, or you know, use that's the least interesting to me if, if it's not useful to anybody else. And, um, you know, there, there was a great opportunity to come here and, and take on public interest type matters, but to do so from a conservative perspective. And mm-hmm. to be honest, the, the opportunities to do that are, are fewer and further between. I, I think if you are uh, left-leaning, progressively minded, there's a, a broader spectrum of, of opportunities and organizations that will gleefully employ, you know, employ lawyers uh, to help them carry on their missions. Fewer uh, opportunities to to do that from a conservative or right of center perspective. And Heritage is one of the few. My timing was good. And uh, so that's the sort of uh, fortunate path that brought me here. I think, um, to me, one, one of the reasons why I admire lawyers, especially conservative ones, to me, a artfully constructed legal argument is one of the most enjoyable things there is to read. Words are so much better than numbers. <laughs> and the ability to use words to make a strong argument that is watertight is so appealing to me and something I wish I could do the way a good lawyer does. And it's always been something that um, I've been envious of their ability to do. And so despite the um, many words I use to describe how much I don't like lawyers and bureaucrats and politicians, the truth is – I admire lawyer. I don't admire politicians except for one or two. And I don't know of any bureaucrats I admire. But lawyers I do. I really do. So thank you for being here. And um, let the record show I don't hate them as much as I sometimes say. <laughs> just, it's just the Washington ones that generally I really don't like. Um, but enough about that. Let's get into what we're here to talk about, which is um, there are a number of ca- – there, there are a number of cases – there are always cases. There are always cases – that um, have an impact. There are always cases that are uh, being considered or being heard that have an impact on energy and environment. This year, there is a couple that are treme- that could have tremendous impact on how um, how government does government stuff, and it's it, it is this case that led to that whole shtick I did at the beginning because it it really is one of the um, one of the pillars that federal bureaucrats use to exert power over the people through the bureaucracy. So with that being said, can you tell us a little bit about um, the, the, the Loper case? And, um, and I think there's another one that's related. So just walk us through that and, and I'll ask some questions as, as we go along. Sure, happy to. So um, the, the Loper-Bright case – uh, and its companion case, the, it was called the Relentless Case. So, so it's Loper Bright Enterprises of Mondo, uh, and then uh, Relentless versus, uh, I believe it's Department of Commerce. Um, but these are two companion cases. They're brought both of them by fishermen, both presenting identical issues and identical arguments. And what they are, uh, in, in substance, is a challenge to 
the Chevron Doctrine. The Chevron Doctrine, for people who aren't familiar with it, is a doctrine that requires courts to defer to contested agency interpretations of law, uh, at least in certain circumstances. Um, you know, the, the classic test for Chevron is looking at the text of a law, is the text clear? If it is, then you, you apply it as written. If it's not, in some relevant sense, if it's ambiguous or if there's a gap or silence somewhere, um, then courts are required to defer to the agency's, quote, reasonable interpretation, close quote, um, of the law. Now, you know, th there are certain practical reasons why this might seem appealing, but in certain obvious ways, it should concern us. Um, one, if there's a dispute in front of a court, um, that means there's another party to litigation. And Chevron, it seems, kind of puts the thumb on the scale from the get-go. So the parties before the court are not... Uh, in some sense, getting equal justice. One seems to have the ear of the court, the favor of the court, just by dint of its institutional identity, right? Um, there's no requirement in Chevron that the agency's interpretation be super persuasive or super compelling. It just needs to be reasonable in some undefined sense. So, you know, if you're a party that's facing agencies in, in litigation for any number of reasons, because of course agencies cover any number of, of topics and areas, um, you're at a distinct disadvantage in trying to to prove your case. Um, that typically means you know your personal individual rights are are going to take a back seat here. Whether that's your property right, um, you know whether it's just your general due process right, liberty rights, um, these are going to be affected if you have an agency case that's subject to, to Chevron deference. So the specifics for these two cases? Right? Be, before we get into the specifics, let's sure. I want to talk a little bit more about Chevron. Of course. Um, and why it matters so much. What you just said was a great description, but I'd, I'd like to go a little bit deeper because of a couple of things. One, to me, the reason I've always – not just me. I mean this has been a, a, a part of sort of conservative policy uh, – discussions for a long time, that we need to get rid of Chevron of, of the Chevron deference, it, cr it, it creates, I think, it puts us on a trajectory toward less freedom for the individual, for the citizen. Because even if at the beginning there was a reasonable argument to be made that when there, are, when there is this ambiguity, that we have these experts, that, that people in Congress, they're not the experts, so if we're going to do some sort of government thing... Let's let the experts in the executive branch bring their expertise to bear to make this thing happen. But the second that becomes the case and it builds over time, you're always growing that power in the executive branch at the expense of the individual, at the expense of the citizen. Because anytime you bring a case against an agency, as you pointed out, it's always – the deference always goes to them. And – um, and that become that that becomes problematic over time because, like uh, the, the the closer you are to the uh, to to the original decision, the less difference it makes. But as you go over time, it becomes greater and greater over time, and that has become more problematic as the size and scope of government has has grown. So that's point number one. That why I think this is important. Point number two is that it 
it philosophically it philosophically depends on the conclusion that government has authority over the people like has a has a monopoly on expertise over the people that if you are an official expert then you are by virtue of the chevron doctrine in a court when it comes to questions of regulation and of 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 these matters you are better than the rest of us and that to me just seems like a a, a not a good dynamic for a free, vibrant society. And again, like the other thing, it grows over time. And um, and look, I don't know uh, what we have seen occur in the last number of years with um, and and again, I'm not getting into the conspiracy stuff. I'm not trying, to, but but with COVID, where we where where we had government experts that were the authorities. And, or, or claimed to be the authorities and for which policy was determined as a result of, that they were just wrong on this stuff. We see it, and then we see it in environment stuff, I would say with global warming specifically all the time, this, this where we are told that the official experts are the, when I say official, the government experts are the, their word is what matters more than other people. They're more equal than the rest of us. And that is extraordinarily problematic in a free society. You're right. Um it's not, of course. I think our primary concern is, is probably how it affects, uh, you know, individual citizens. As you say, it grows over time, and it grows at the expense not just of, of individual rights. Uh, there are separation of powers concerns. It tends to grow to the detriment of Congress and the courts. Um, you know, we have to keep in mind that agencies—they're not a freestanding branch of government. People. Um, half joking we refer to them as the headless fourth branch but in reality most of them are housed within the executive branch they are subject to some level of presidential control practically speaking it may not be great but they're within the executive branch the interpretive exercise that agencies are entitled to undertake because of chevron or at least they're they're goaded into taking because of chevron in some cases they really just have to interpret to apply but it begins to look increasingly legislative Right? Mm-hmm. It's less about filling in details that Congress simply didn't put into a statute, like when should this application be due? Right? Ba- basic administrative things that are functionally necessary. Um, it, it takes on less of that character and it migrates towards making contested policy decisions, things that we think of as needing to be resolved by the people's elected representatives right. in Congress. So more and more of those decisions end up being taken over by the agencies. And can, just real quick, and, and that, that fur, that's a further erosion of the individual rights because the, the individual's representation, the most direct representation for the individual in the U.S. government is the House of Representatives and then to a lesser extent, but still the Senate. And what Chevron, along with other things, has allowed them to do is to put all to, to, to avoid responsibility for these decisions that the people wouldn't want. That's right. Um, part of the reason that we have as much ambiguity in federal legislation as we do is because our elected representatives find it difficult to reach the necessary compromises, right? They, they, re, they hit on this thorny issue within their broader scheme, and they find they can't muster a majority for it, or fighting about it is too costly or too time-consuming. They need to get something passed before they go home for recess. Or they don't um, want to be subject to their constituents. Right. They don't want to have to, you know, the, the constituents sometimes don't have especially a, a whole lot of insight necessarily into what their representative is responsible for. But sometimes that's, like you say, by design. Yeah. Uh, representatives and, and senators will, will sort of do their best 
to conceal that for which they are responsible if they suspect it will be unpopular. Right. And the agencies afford them a ready means of doing that because if they say, all right, all I put in to the law that I sponsored or voted for was this kind of vague language. I didn't know that SEC or EPA or any one of the alphabet soup agencies was going to take this meaning from it. I didn't intend that at all. Right. I can't be held responsible for that. And in, maybe they did or didn't foresee the interpretation that ultimately arose. But the thing is they built that space in. Right. They, they built that space in, uh, at least in some cases. Um, sometimes, and, and this may be just as concerning, they didn't build the space in or they didn't think they did. Right. But language being the sort of imprecise vehicle that it is, always a little bit imperfect, always having um, a certain spectrum of meanings, might be a fixed spectrum. but And the ability to use language to obfuscate mm-hmm. that purposefully, mm-hmm. I would argue, often. You, there, there are instances where, yes, there's, there's this intent on the part of the legislature to avoid hard decisions, to make it vague by design. They intend it. That's, that's troubling. It's problematic. But as I say, there's this other and maybe even broader set of scenarios in which they really don't even think they're being that vague. Yeah. They, they don't think they are being imprecise. They do not intend to confer any interpretive discretion on the agencies. But agencies can nonetheless come back sometimes decades after the fact to old laws and read through them looking for previously unused or forgotten provisions where they find the necessary wording and think to themselves, aha, here's the hook. For this grand new power that I'm imagining. And this is what we saw in a lot of the COVID emergency response cases, right? right? OSHA with the vaccine mandate or the eviction moratorium. Uh, we saw it a little bit later with the student loan uh, cancellation cases. We, we saw it with um, CO2 being regulated under the Clean Air Act. Mm-hmm. I would is another right. example. Quite right. Historically, um, there hadn't been responsibility for regulating greenhouse gases under that law, right. and this was that was or, a, cur- a precursor. Or any gas that is not a pollutant that is just a um, a naturally occurring thing. Right. Right. A, a constituent part of the atmosphere. Right. Not not something traditionally considered a pollutant. The criteria least. pollutant as envisioned by the Clean Air Act. Right. At least not when it was drafted. Right. And 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 that's a great example. It was an early example, a pre sort of emergency example yeah. of. Uh, an agency just sort of looking for a hook somewhere, and you can send lawyers by the legion through these statutory texts and just find, like, where is the provision right. with this sufficiently ambiguous language or this gaps and silences? This is maybe the most infuriating thing, and it's raised specifically in the Loper, Bright, and Relentless cases that the court heard argument in yesterday. But gaps and silences, these can be enough. Mm-hmm. It would raise a whole question. How do we know that there's a gap, and how do we know that there's a silence? Um, how do we know that Congress didn't simply mean to carve out this or that thing, mm-hmm. right? Why why do we assume that this is a gap and that an agency therefore has authority to fill? That's a highly, highly dubious mm-hmm. assumption, um, but one that ends up having enormous consequences. And Chevron enables this, right? right? This, this deference to agencies, allowing agencies to say, ah, here's a silence, here's a gap. You court may not agree, you may not think that this is actually science or gap, but trust us, that's, that's what we've got here. Um, and here's a reasonable way of filling it. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that's, you know, on a kind of mechanical level, how Chevron has led to, to this expansion of, of regulatory uh, authority. So, and so there are these couple of cases that are bringing this Chevron doctrine, Chevron preference doctrine into question. Mm-hmm. And 
This has been has, has this been brought before the court before? Well, you know, something we should say first, real quick, is um, where does the Chevron deference come from? So it's named for a 1984 Supreme Court decision called Chevron versus Natural Resources Defense Council. Um, it was written by Justice John Paul Stevens. The history of it is actually pretty strange. Um, there was a, a, there were a limited number of justices that were able to hear this case. It involved um, an EPA interpretation. The EPA is not a named party, but it involved an EPA interpretation of a stationary source uh, for purposes of regulating uh, power plant, plants and their pollution output. So there was a dispute as to what um, the EPA exactly could regulate and could control with its rules. Justice Stevens, again, writing with sort of a limited court, was just trying to find a way around this thorny interpretive question. Uh, and what he did when he wrote the opinion was actually traditional statutory interpretation, right? Looked very closely at the language, looked very closely at the history of what EPA had done in its regulatory ambit and compared what they had done in the past with what they were trying to do now. So th this kind of close, careful analysis of language, history, all the rest, and ultimately concluded that the EPA in this particular circumstance was justified, had, had warrant for this. The strange thing he did, though, is that he bookended this really careful analysis with these few paragraphs that pontificated broadly about the benefits of expertise and how courts, when they are less expert, ought basically to give some interpretive license to agencies to, to basically allow them to get on with the job, right? What happened is that about two years down the line, lower courts started reading this decision, which at the time no one took to be terribly important. Right? No one thought it had wrought this amazing uh, shift in, in administrative law. But lower courts started to read this decision closely, and they deduced from it what became the canonical two-part test of Chevron, the is the statute clear? If it's not, then is agency interpretation reasonable? Um, lower courts latched onto this thinking, oh, this is just kind of an easy way to get through some of the really difficult, dense work of statutory interpretation. And it started to work its way back up. And ultimately, the Supreme Court ends up latching onto this two-part test, even though the Supreme Court did not itself create it. The Supreme Court latches onto it, brings it to being, we have now roughly 40 years, this is a little less, because um, like I said, it would, it, the test truly did not start in 84 with the decision. It took mm -hmm. a couple of years. But we have, you know... Well over three decades, nearing four decades of, of Chevron deference. It has been subject to revision. It's been back up to the court a few times on various challenges. In the early 2000s, there was the Meade decision that said, actually, there's a step zero. Uh, we need to look at the statute to figure out if Congress actually delegated rulemaking authority before we can go into this two-step you know, reasonableness ambiguity uh, inquiry. So Meade introduced a step zero. It didn't really slow the boat. You know, Chevron mm -hmm. kind of continued to pace. I feel like a boat is the appropriate vehicle here since we're dealing with fishermen <laughs> in these cases. Um, you know, it, it has come up a few times in, I think it was 2013, was FCC versus City of Arlington, where the question was, well, does the agency get Chevron deference when it's determining the scope of its own jurisdiction? Uh, and Chief Justice Roberts uh, vigorously denied this, uh, and he was joined by two fellow justices. The late Justice Scalia wrote the majority. And he said, yes, agencies get Chevron deference on this, the scope of their authority. He, he had uh, interesting reasons for that. Uh, I won't go into great depth on those. Uh, but here, one of the great you know, conservative heroes of the court was, in fact, one of the actors most responsible for shepherding Chevron into a full-fledged doctrine. Can I ask you quickly what his reasoning was? Uh, Scalia was something of a fan of the 
uniformity that Chevron was supposed to bring mm-hmm. uh, in, into existence. More than that, Scalia was always a great judicial restrainer. Mm-hmm. Right? He did not like the notion of judges making policy decisions of overturning or questioning laws because they didn't like the the sort of values that those laws expressed. He thought that this was antithetical mm-hmm. to the judicial role. He thought early on in, in his Supreme Court career, late in his D.C. Circuit career and then early in his Supreme Court career, that Chevron was a way of taking judges out of the policymaking business. Mm-hmm. Right? If you focus them as Chevron appears to on statutory text, if you take out considerations about is this a good or bad you know, definition of a stationary source um, from, from a policy perspective, then judges will be relatively more restrained in the kind of rulings they can issue. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that, that hope proved not to be terribly well-founded. You know, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think anybody blames him for not having foreseen exactly where this would go. Um, but there are lots of people, including the great law professor at Columbia, Tom Merrill, who's done all kinds of work on Chevron, uh, who, who basically said, Listen, the key inquiry in Chevron, whether a statute is ambiguous or not, is an ambiguous inquiry. Mm-hmm. Right? There is no settled way for determining whether the ambiguity is large or small enough to count Different judges reading the same law will reach different conclusions. One court will say it's ambiguous. Another will say it's not. Some judges, uh, highly distinguished judges with long careers, have gone their entire careers applying Chevron and never finding ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, when you have that kind of fundamental flaw at the heart of the test, uh, it turns out you're actually not meaningfully constraining the ability of judges to introduce sort of non-legal factors, whether whether consciously or unconsciously. Mm -hmm. Um, But what you do enable is judges who are rather enamored of agency expertise and think they ought to resolve all kinds of questions. You make it a little bit easier for them to say, Mm -hmm. "Mm, boy, this this text is dense, and I just don't know that I have a firm grasp on it. But you know what? The agency works with this all the time. I think they've got it. Mm -hmm. And therein lies the problem that it's this transference of authority from the people to so-called official experts that a lot of us in public policy on the conservative side are extraordinarily, extraordinarily skeptical of because it's not that – it's not that – at least I'll speak for myself. It's not that I don't respect experts. It's that I see how easily in public policy space expertise is manipulated in order to advance an agenda. And as soon as you defer to the experts as a matter of policy, then you – then you um, you, you distort the value of their expertise. And rather than expertise being something that funnels into the policymaker to inform the overall decision-making, the expert becomes the policymaker. And then that creates the incentive to empower the expert in order to define an, 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 an outcome that advances your agenda. And that is – and you do that enough times and you start to erode democracy. Exactly. And you acclimate agencies to this new role – of being co-legislators, right? Well, you know, think about the name. They're agencies. They're agents. They're meant to serve the will of somebody else, and that will is the will of the legislature as expressed in law. Um, But on a practical level, not what they're doing often. Often they are making disputed policy choices, ones that weren't clearly given to them to decide. And so they are acting instead. They're not acting as agents. They're acting as independent actors. They're acting as co Legislators, you know, that's that's a kind of dangerous tendency that that Chevron has has enabled. Often to do things that couldn't be that couldn't be passed through the normal democratic yes. process. That's right. It's a, it's it's this kind of alternate channel. We, we see this more and more. 
certainly in the Biden administration, although it, it didn't begin with, with President Biden, you know, previous administrations uh, had tried it to one degree or another, where, yes, they have, they don't, you know, their party does not control the legislature. There is less cooperation between the executive branch and the legislative branch. Um, so policy, this becomes the alternate policy channel, right? Uh, student loan cancellation is a prime example of that. Mm-hmm. Numerous bills have been introduced to try and uh, find a legislative solution to borrowers who had taken out, you know, who owed more than they had taken out and, and, and you know, couldn't discharge in a bankruptcy. I am, you know, problems, problems worthy of attention, however, you, whatever kind of moral significance you assign to them. Um, but the fact is that Congress hadn't arrived at a solution. And so the president insisted that he could do this all on his own. And here's another problem, or, you know, that, that, that uh, example gestures at, and it was brought up numerous times in oral argument yesterday. Uh, Chevron effectively short circuits the legislative process. Right. Uh, if you have another means of doing business, then all of the hurdles and all the difficulties of working across party lines, you know, through two chambers, uh, and then avoiding presidential veto, you, you're going to want to avoid that at all costs, right? If you are, let's say you're a Democrat in the House currently, uh, and you find it difficult to work with the Republican majority, but you have the White House, you have the executive branch, and thus you have all the agencies at your disposal. Your incentive is not to work with Republican legislators. Your incentive is to harangue the White House into sending commands down the chain to you know agency heads and having them go through the exercise I alluded to earlier, combing the statutes, combing the books, looking for language that allows them to do what they'd like to do without ever having to pass a new law. Yeah. So we have these cases coming up. You mentioned that this, the Chevron doctrine had been considered in the past and it had been upheld. Mm-hmm. The thinking now is that it might not be. Mm-hmm. What, what has changed? I, I think there's been more time to see the fruits of the doctrine. Um, and it's not that they weren't on display, you know, say the earlier part of this decade, uh, but there's been more time to to see what kind of changes Chevron has wrought for our legal system. And then, of course, there's been a change in composition of the court, right? Like, you don't want to make too much of that, but you also can't discount it, right? You have a 6-3 split based on, you know, the party of the president appointing. So you have six Republican-appointed justices, three Democrat-appointed justices. At certain times in our past, that wouldn't necessarily have been as indicative of votes. You had a couple of Republican appointees who actually became, um, you know, sort of core members of the liberal bloc. But right now, um, the the appointing party tends to map on reasonably well to the voting preferences of the justice. Um, but not all the time. Not all the time. That's for sure. That's for sure. Um, but it's it's interesting. I think when it comes to matters of administrative law, and this term has a number of blockbuster cases. It's not just these two, although the, these two, you know, making one Chevron challenge are probably the biggest. Um, that seems to be the the notion of reforming and restraining the administrative state seems to be a cause common and dear to the six Republican appointed justices. They have different thoughts on how to approach it. They have different notions as to how great a problem it is, but all of them, I think, collectively agree that it is a problem in need of some at least partially judicial solution. And why? Because they recognize that historically the judiciary has caused much of the problem with things like Chevron. Do you see any prospect of the three democratically appointed judges supporting 
um, a change in pol- a change in uh, the Chevron dot def- uh, difference? A change, sure. Overruling it, almost certainly not. Um, a couple terms ago, Justice Kagan authored a majority opinion in a case called Kaiser v. Wilkie. It addressed a separate but similar type of deference doctrine. It's called our deference. It deals not with statutes but with agency regulations. Nonetheless, it was similar enough where the attacks on our deference were similar to the kind of attacks that are being launched on Chevron. Kagan managed to cobble together a majority that saved the existence of our deference. She did so by basically putting a whole litany of preconditions on the doctrine's application. She's like, okay, before we get to deference, we have to make sure that this is true. We have to make sure that that's true. We have to make sure that courts have gone through literally every possible tool in the statutory interpretation kit, among other things. Um, But basically, she sort of, she narrowed its application enough to peel off a few uh, more conservative votes and say, all right, you know, with all these safety measures and constraints in place, we'll keep our. There's some thought that the court would take the same approach here. And I think that's what Justice Kagan will try to do. I think that she recognizes some of the weaknesses um, in Chevron deference. She recognizes the, the, the strength and validity of some of the critiques, but she does not want to do without it. Uh, she thinks it's too important. And she also fundamentally, I don't think she sees a constitutional problem with it. Mm-hmm. And so she'll be willing to narrow it. I think she will write an opinion uh, as she did in Kaiser, that tries to condition its application, narrow its application, uh, assuage lots of the concerns in hopes that she can she can get a few votes there. And they might be there for the taking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the chief may be on board with that. Mm-hmm. He's going to want to see some kind of change, some kind of reform, but he may not be gung-ho about getting rid of it. Mm-hmm. Justice Barrett, um, her instincts are very much in the judicial restraint school. Um, she is not necessarily a gung-ho, gung-ho, full-bore originalist who's ready to revisit any and all questions, um, no matter what their kind of shockwave effects on the legal community. Um, she may be amenable to a kind of piecemeal partial solution or reform. Um, so those, those votes may be out there for the taking, um, but it's, it's not a guarantee. I can mm-hmm. say, having listened to all four hours of oral argument yesterday, back-to-back cases, all six conservatives sounded skeptical. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just don't know yet how that's going to cash out um, in, in terms of a solution, right? I think Justices Gorsuch and Thomas will be, would be totally on board with just getting rid of Chevron, mm-hmm. uh, saying all questions of law need to be interpreted afresh and anew by the judge. The judge has a duty of independent judgment to interpret the statute according to its best possible meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but for the rest of them, it's, it's, it's an open question um, where, where they'll come down. Unfortunately, um, I spoke way too much at the beginning, <laughs> and we talked way too much about Chevron, though I, I shouldn't say unfortunately on that part because it's an important issue. There's another important case coming up. Can you give us just like a quick overview of what that is? Sure. So the other uh, – well, I said there's probably two other major administrative law cases, but the one more relevant here is, is Jarcusy versus SEC. Actually, on, 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 at the Supreme Court, it was flipped. It's SEC versus Jarcusy because um, Jarcusy won below. Um, so that was actually argued a couple weeks ago. As the case title indicates, it's about the SEC. Um, but it's Securities about a, and Exchange Commission. Correct, yes. Um, but it, it concerns problems that um, you know, would affect a number of agencies, including, for instance, EPA. Uh, it has to do with uh, not rulemaking like Chevron, but it has to do with adjudication. 
So in addition to being sort of quasi-legislators, agencies also act as quasi-judges sometimes. Um, they bring enforcement actions when they think the statute they administer has been violated. Uh, they can bring those in traditional Article Three courts in front of judges. They don't have to, though. Uh, they can opt for what's called in-house adjudication in front of an administrative law judge. Uh, that's what the SEC did in the case of George Jarkissi, who's a hedge fund manager uh, you know, charged with having defrauded clients. And uh, they brought the enforcement action, not in court, but in-house, in front of an SEC-appointed administrative law judge. Uh, and you know, not surprisingly, they have a phenomenal win right there. It's better than home court advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Jarkissi, obviously not pleased by this outcome, mounted a number of challenges. He's been at this for quite a while. And when his case got to the Fifth Circuit, well, my, my old court, um, they ruled for him on three grounds. They said, one, uh, agency, the SEC, has violated your Seventh Amendment jury right for, in civil cases by trying you without a jury or not even giving you the option. This in-house proceeding has no jury option, obviously. Mm-hmm. So they violated your Seventh Amendment right. They have a non-delegation problem because Congress has allowed them to choose are they going to bring their enforcement action in-house or in a court? But it's given them no principle for choosing between the two. You almost think to yourself, why in heaven's name, if you were the SEC or some other agency, EPA, for instance, why in heaven's name would you ever choose to go to court? Um, actually, the, the funny reality is that they have started going to court in the last few years because they've seen this challenge coming. Mm-hmm. And they don't want, they're afraid that retroactively some of their, their convictions uh, or penalties will be overturned. So they actually have started changing, but it's only been out of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this lack of intelligible principle for making the choice is, is a failure on Congress's part to provide uh, a meaningful principle for the agency to apply. Uh, and then last, uh, there's the argument that ALJs are too insulated from presidential control, right? We have to remember that even though they look like judges and even though we think of judges as needing to be independent— And an ALJ is an administrative law judge. That's right. That's right. Uh, even though ALJs, they look like judges, they act kind of like judges— They're employees of the executive branch, right? EPA, SEC, these are all executive branch agencies. They are under the president. And as agents, they need to be controlled by a principle. That principle is the president. So if they have too many layers of protection from presidential removal, um, that can pose a constitutional problem. Mm -hmm. So these were the three arguments that the Supreme Court heard a couple weeks ago in in SEC versus Jarkissi. I can say that they focused far and away more on the Seventh Amendment question than anything else. They didn't seem very interested in non-delegation. That's a tough argument to make. Um, it's a super important question, but I just don't think it's going to be resolved here. You know, and, and how does this cash out in other agencies? Well, as I alluded to, agencies like EPA um, have administrative law judges. They can bring internal enforcement proceedings. If there's a problem with the SEC ALJs, there's probably a problem with EPA ALJs as well, and really mm-hmm. anywhere they exist in the federal administrative state. Um, so that'll be a big one. Uh, like I said, was argued a couple weeks before this case, we should expect to get rulings on both by June, but probably not before then. Mm-hmm. Jack, let me, um, I want to, we, we need to close. I want to thank you. This has been really outstanding. And um, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. I'm going to ask you to come back because we didn't get to talk about like what this means for policy. Like how does this filter out? And maybe that's okay because in June or thereabouts, we're going to get decisions and it would be great if you would to come back and we'll talk about what those decisions were and what we can expect then. I'd be delighted to. You did a great job. Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out. Email us at thepowerhour at heritage.org. 
Now, before we end, Jack, is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, I don't think so. Uh, just just be on the lookout for uh, for decisions in these two cases come June. Uh, I look forward to discussing them. Also, keep an eye on the CFPB funding case. That's the other big admin law case. Uh, again, could could affect administrations running the whole gamut. CFPB, uh, speaking of erosions of our democracy, the <laughs> right, Consumer right. Financial Protection Board. We can talk more about that later. Now, where can people find you at real quick? Uh, well, you can find me at heritage.org. Uh, you could find me on uh, The Daily Signal. I have pieces coming there pretty regularly, including a summary of yesterday's oral arguments in the Chevron cases. Very good. Jack, John, any final words? This is your last chance. My last John? chance is I feel enriched today. I learned so much from Jack. Thank you so much, sir. It was good stuff. And our guest as well. You should thank him. Well, that was, oh. <laughs> Got me on I that know, one. I know. I know. Oh, thank All you, John. Right. <laughs> Remember it, everyone. Follow us at the Power Hour at Heritage.org or emails. Thank you, John and Jack Fitzhenry. Thank you for being a guest. And most importantly, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next time.